About a month ago, Angela and I decided to get all of our flower beds mulched so that we could enjoy the beauty of the spring growth. Now, prior to this, we had a lot of weeds that had grown in, making everything look really bad. And I had done my best to pull out the majority of the weeds to make it look the best that it could uh, in preparation for us to put this mulch down. In addition, we decided that we would put down some newspaper over everything and then put the mulch on top of that to prevent the weeds from growing back up. We had heard that this was a great way of keeping them from growing back. And maintaining our flower beds on a regular basis and having to pull up weeds is just too time-consuming, and it it tends to, to be really tedious and a challenge during the summer months. So we called our friend who helps us with some of our yard work, and he and his crew came, and they got us the mulch that we needed, and they took the newspaper that we had collected, and they went to work and spent a day working out in the yard. When they were done, everything looked beautiful. In fact, it, for a while, it looked like a picture from a Southern Living magazine. We were very pleased with what we had seen. But to my dismay, I began to notice weeds growing up through the mulch a couple of weeks later. And I wasn't sure why this was happening, given the fact that we had put this newspaper down and the mulch over it, so I went to check it out. Well, the newspaper was there, And what I discovered is that the roots from the weeds were going right up through the newspaper. They were still there. I had done my best to pull out the majority of the weeds, but I thought the weeds that were left would would die under the weight of the newspaper and the mulch. But apparently, I was wrong. And so I have learned that if you want to get rid of the weeds, you have to pull each and every one up and out by its root. You see, today we come to a passage of Scripture from 1 Timothy that is often misquoted, which changes the understanding of the passage altogether. You might say that it's all about the root of the matter. Paul is instructing his apprentice, young Timothy, about the importance of godliness and contentment. And all of 1 Timothy is written to warn Timothy and the church there in Ephesus of false teachings that were going against the grain of the good news of the gospel. And as the letter concludes, Paul focuses his attention on the false teachers who preached that godliness is a means to financial gain. In other words, if you follow Jesus, you will be blessed with more money, more provision, and many more blessings. You see, the prosperity gospel existed a long, long time ago, even in Paul's day, and he warns the church and he warns Timothy that this is simply not true. Seeking to be godly is not a means to an end to benefit oneself financially or to expect that God will somehow increase your material prosperity. And the truth is, is that even today there are many pastors and preachers and televangelists who continue to preach this same message that Paul warned about, telling you that if you will just send them some money, that God will bless you even more. It's not that God doesn't bless those who are faithful. It's just that those blessings aren't always in the form of financial gain or material possessions. So this is dangerous territory, and Paul wants Timothy and the church to be aware of it. In fact, Paul says, 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul challenges the notion that godliness breeds financial gain by saying that godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, he is reiterating the life and teachings of Jesus. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Jesus was a nomad, constantly traveling from village to village with his disciples to teach and to share the good news. Jesus was largely dependent upon the hospitality and the provision of others. He didn't have a large home. He didn't have central air or the financial means to vacate at the Mediterranean beaches every year. And even though Jesus is Lord and King, he didn't travel upon a white horse and he wasn't served or treated like a king. Jesus lived a simple life, a life of contentment, a life of trust in God, a life of praying for God to provide his daily bread. So why should these false teachers preach a gospel different from the one that Jesus lived? So Paul reminds Timothy that we come into the world with nothing and that whatever we gain while we are here is not of our own doing, but of God. And even so, whatever we accumulate or whatever we gain cannot follow us into eternity. It will be left behind. Maybe you've heard the phrase, everything that glitters isn't gold. Paul warns that getting rich doesn't prevent a life of problems. It actually can create a life of them. Now, I've often heard people say, if I could just win the lottery, everything would be great. And certainly that's what so many people tend to think. I mean, winning tons of money would solve all of our problems, wouldn't it? I mean, we'd have no debts. We wouldn't have to work our jobs anymore, and we could live the good life, and this would be life-changing for us. But according to a 2016 Time Magazine article, this is completely untrue. Don McNay says this, So many of them, those who have won the lottery, wind up unhappy or wind up broke. Now, Don McNay is a financial consultant to lottery winners, and he's also the author of Life Lessons from the Lottery. And he goes on to say, people commit suicide. People run through their money. Easy comes, easy goes. They go through divorce or people die. And so the article shares stories about individuals and of past winners and the destruction of their lives after winning all of this money. Jack Whitaker is one of these stories. Now, Jack Whitaker won $315 million in a lottery in 2002 in West Virginia. And he claimed that he went broke four years later and lost a daughter and a granddaughter to drug overdoses, which he blames on the curse of his Powerball win. He now wishes that he had torn up the ticket. You see, winning the lottery isn't the answer to life's problems. 
nor is becoming wealthy from all of our hard work. Paul's argument is that the desire to get rich is a temptation that can lead us into self-destruction and ruin. Money can change our hearts and our relationships with others. And so often people say that money is the root of all evil, misquoting Paul here, but that's not what he says. Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, Paul doesn't see money as evil in and of itself. Rather, he's most concerned about misplaced love. Those who desire wealth and riches above all else fall into the trap of the evils that can result from it. And Paul knows this firsthand. I mean, think about it. Judas Iscariot, Jesus' disciple, sold him out for 30 silver pieces coins. And it led to his demise. Ananias and Sapphira in the early church deceptively reported their generosity to the church. And it led to their destruction. And our scripture today from Luke's gospel reminds us of the problems of misplaced love too. You see, a certain ruler who had great wealth approaches Jesus one day wanting to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus directs him back to the commandments that have to do with loving one's neighbor. And the man admits that he's kept all of these since he was a boy. So then Jesus tells them this, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, Jesus' answer to the ruler made him very sad because Luke says he was very wealthy. Jesus knew that he had followed the commandments that had to do with loving one's neighbor, but that he had forgotten the greatest and the first commandment in Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. He had misplaced his love for God with the love of his money. And the only remedy to the only remedy to remedy this was to pull up that weed all the way up by its root. Otherwise, it would just come back. You see, that's the real issue at stake for all of us misplaced love. That is the root of all kinds of evil. Our sinfulness can allow anything that is essentially good to be a root of evil. And we have to acknowledge our own temptations and do what Paul urged Timothy to do, to flee from them. He tells him, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Essentially what Paul is saying is that we are to flee from our temptations that misplace our love for God and to pursue our love for God, which is the root of all good and godliness. This is a fight against the demons that seek to possess us. And we're called to take hold of the eternal life to which we've been called by Christ himself. But it's important for you to understand that Paul is not talking about heaven here. He's talking about living into real and abundant life that Jesus has called us into now. 
This is the life of the kingdom of heaven that has the power to shield off our temptations, pursuing God's will and reign in the world. Jesus offered that same eternal life to the young ruler who traded real life for a life of many griefs. And it's Jesus who offers the same eternal life to every one of us. In fact, he wants us to be content and to see whatever blessings we've received, well, to use them to love others. Osceola McCarty lived such a life. This poor African-American native of Shibuta, Mississippi, spent almost 87 years of her life making a daily wage by providing laundering services for others. After quitting school in the sixth grade, she went to work, never marrying and never getting her driver's license or owning a car. She ended up living in her small family home in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and she lived the most simplistic life anyone really could live. She would even cut out the toes of her shoes if they didn't fit right rather than buying a new pair, and she never purchased an air conditioner until the last few years of her life. But over the course of her life, she saved her money, and it accumulated over $150,000. But rather than using that money on herself, she decided to give it all away to support scholarships for black students at the University of Southern Mississippi. She says this, I wanted to share my wealth with the children. I never minded work, but I was always so busy. Maybe I can make it so the children don't have to work like I did. I know it won't be too many years before I pass on, and I just figured the money would do them a lot more good than it would me. Now, Bill Pace, who is the executive director of the university's foundation, which administers scholarships for the school, had to say this about Ms. McCarty. He said, I've been in the business for 24 years now in private fundraising, and this is the first time I've experienced anything like this from an individual who simply was not affluent, did not have the resources, and yet gave substantially. In fact, she's given almost everything she has. No one approached her from the university. She approached us. She's seen the poverty, the young people who have struggled, who need an education. She is the most unselfish individual I have ever met. You see, this gift came from a woman who took scotch tape to her old tattered Bible to keep Paul's letter to the Corinthians from falling out of it. Miss McCarty's faith, coupled with God's provision of her daily bread, led her to give it all away, unlike the rich young ruler. And the amazing thing is that Miss McCarty didn't feel as if she had lost anything in the process, but that she was able to give something that would prevent others from struggling to make ends meet just like she did. Yes, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But the love of God is the root of all kinds of goodness and life transformation. You see, it's not so much about how much we make or how much we have. It's what we do with what we've been given from God. 
And Jesus calls us to follow him wherever we are, to have eternal life, to have real life now as we love God and serve him with our lives. And in doing so, we become participants in his kingdom work in the world in ways that bless others beyond measure as we bear witness to Christ's unconditional love for all of us. Today, Jesus calls us to weed out anything that has taken his rightful place in our hearts so that we might embrace true life, real life now. In fact, Paul goes on to tell Timothy, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Friends, my prayer for us is that we would do this as God's people, as God's church, that together our deep love for God would be at the center of our lives so that we might share our blessings, taking hold of the life that is truly life here and now together. That is what God has called us to do as we follow him as Jesus' disciples. So friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.